0: So to kind of transition to more of like an educational component um, for this, we're doing things kind of different this year, everybody. We wanted to kind of do a two-in-one where we're going to be going over kind of the day in the life of a pharmacist, kind of have them talk about their experience, how they got there, and then also include an educational component. So for this educational component today, we kind of really wanted to walk through um, depression, okay? A little bit of antipsychotics as well. So that's something that I feel, or I believe a lot of us when we we're in pharmacy school, we didn't get enough experience with. Um, it seemed pretty straightforward, whatever drug we had to choose, but in real life or a world scenario, it's a bit more complex than that. And so we figured we have a specialist come in, give us a, a little bit of assistance here and kind of walk us through the things that she looks at and the things that she would counsel a patient on, because that's also a very important part um, when it comes to these patients when you're starting on a new med, um, or if you're changing the dose, kind of educating them on, on what could be happening. So when it comes to antidepressant therapy, can you kind of walk us through um, what antidepressants initially for an, a patient new start, no drug interactions whatsoever, what's kind of like the first medication is your go to and why?
1: So my preference is Lexapro only because I personally have seen like a lot of great response to it. I feel like side effect profile um, wise, it's like pretty benign. Um, And I also feel like of the antidepressants, it has like not as much of a sexual dysfunction risk as as like others. Um, I mean, of course there's a potential sexual dysfunction, which is why some people, like if they do have sexual dysfunction at Lexapro, they'll switch to like Bupropion or Mertazapine. But um, something like Lexapro, I feel like, works really, really well. Um, I've seen a lot of great change in a lot of my patients. So that's why I just personally really love the drug. Um, Sertraline, some of my colleagues really like that one too, because there's like a meta-analysis that was out that showed that it had really great response. But overall, like I think both are great medications to start off with. The reason why I personally don't like sertraline as much is because the GI side effects is pretty prominent in sertraline, especially when you first start it. Um, Some people take it with food as a way to help mitigate some of those side effects. But um, I have personally had some patients where the GI side effects were so bad, like they had a really bad stomach ache, they had diarrhea, they had just a lot of um, GI side effects, and they absolutely, and nauseous too, they absolutely did not want to take it. So um, that's kind of why I personally don't like it. But I have seen change. Um, There's great evidence of sertraline for PTSD. So for someone that has PTSD with depression, it's a great agent to use. Venlafaxine um, is certainly a great drug as well, but it's for an SNRI. So normally I choose SSRIs first. And if they don't respond to a couple, then I'll try an SNRI. Um, not really a big reason why. It's just primarily because... Um, venlafaxine one side effect it has versus others is that higher doses it could increase like greater than 150 milligrams it could increase your blood pressure yeah. so um that's kind of why like for me i've always just preferred ssris because i feel like the side effects are a little bit more benign comparatively okay. um versus bupropion so bupropion interesting um it actually doesn't have any serotonergic property in it it's um primarily dopamine is how it okay. works and the reason why we still use it in depression, even though there's no serotonergic activity, is because um, we don't truly know what causes depression. There's a monoamine hypothesis. And like if, if it was just serotonin, then theoretically these meds should work right away. But all of these meds take four to six weeks to work. So we don't truly know what causes depression yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and bupropion seems to still work in our patients that have depression. And the reason when we use it is because like, if someone has sexual dysfunction, bupropion doesn't really have like a sexual dysfunction side effect. So that's why it's preferred in people that um, may have developed sexual dysfunction or don't even wanna risk having sexual dysfunction. Um, And one thing, one reason why we would not use it as much is if someone has comorbid anxiety, bupropion could worsen anxiety because it acts via dopamine, Mm -hmm. which could at times like worsen anxiety So, um, that's kind of like a really quick and dirty, like my Mm -hmm. thinking process of how I would choose between those four listed uh, medications. Um, if you have more questions, I'm happy to help.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was going to ask. So you said usually before you go to SNRI, you usually try a couple SSRIs. So you mentioned Mm -hmm. Lexapro is mainly your go-to. If Lexapro isn't Mm -hmm. working, where do you go to next? Is it a maybe Zoloft, a different one, peroxetine, fluoxetine? What is kind of yeah? You're so
1: I would first do Lexapro. If they didn't, if it just didn't work and there was no mm-hmm. sexual dysfunction, I'll try Sertraline. If mm-hmm. they're willing to try that, um, if if they don't even want to try it, something in the same class anymore, then I'll ask them. Okay, we can try an SNRI then. Um, so generally in psych, what's interesting is we try to make it like a collaborative, like choice. So we'll ask the patient, like, what do you want? Do you want to try something that's similar in the class? Or do you want to try something that's completely different? Um, and then um, if the patient doesn't want to try something in the same class, then we'll try an SNRI. Or if they want something that, like, is completely different, like bupropion that's considered in the atypical antidepressant class, then we'll try that as well. So there's, um, it all depends on what the patient preference is. Okay.
2: Did you? Yeah. Well, I had a question. So um, you know, with, with depression, like you mentioned, there's a lot of different treatment options Mm -hmm. and, you know, for, for some of these patients, right. It, the first option may not work. Second option may or may not work as well. At what point, um, I guess, do you establish that the patient has, you know, treatment resistant depression and what options are out there to kind of help with that? Um, because I've heard of like esketamine being one of those options. Uh, what have you seen so far for these types of patients?
1: Yeah. So the first question being, how do you define it? So a very simple definition is an episode that has failed to respond to at least two separate trials of different antidepressants of adequate dose and duration. And generally these are different, like antidepressants of different classes, um there's actually a pretty high percentage. I think when I last read about this, there's like a thirty percent of patients with depression are considered to have treatment resistant depression, wow. which is a pretty high number yeah and um if you look at like star d for example, which is like the landmark depression trial, like mm-hmm. you know our, there's a really high rate of like resistance among like once you try one and you and you move on to try different medications the the percentage of remission gradually decreases so um unfortunately, like treatment resistant depression occurs, like, and, and it, it's a sad thing to happen. And yeah. thankfully, we do have options out there. There's S-ketamine, which is the nasal spray. And there's also regular ketamine. Um, at the VA, at my VA, at least we have like um, an S-ketamine, ketamine type of clinic. So patients come in and they, if they have treatment resistant depression, they can come and receive the nasal spray or they come in and receive the IV ketamine. And um, I will say those medications work really fast, like in a matter of a couple like minutes, because um, they're fast acting ketamine, there is evidence of ketamine working pretty well in people with treatment resistant depression. Um, So some people that have to go and receive these treatments, they're like weekly treatments. And um, I think it really works. But the whole purpose of of course, receiving S-ketamine ketamine ketamine is you would be trialing like an oral antidepressant at the same time, and eventually, hopefully taper off with the ketamine or S-ketamine. So that's kind of like the whole idea of like, why we we, we use those medications.
0: Thank you for that question, Alex. And then when you mentioned earlier about switching antidepressants, do you generally, is there a pause? Does it happen immediately if you're going from Let's say um, Lexapro to Zoloft. Do you switch immediately whenever the patient wants to, or do you guys kind of take maybe some time, take a week off of the Lexapro and then switch to it? Is there any time frame or anything that you guys look at?
1: So there are several different strategies that one can take when wanting to switch from one antidepressant to another, and the two strategies are cross taper and the other one is a direct switch. In a cross-taper strategy, what you essentially do is you're slowly, slowly tapering down the antidepressant that someone is currently on and while re- or while initiating a new antidepressant at the same time. Eventually, the, the one that the antidepressant that the patient is on will be slowly reduced until completely off, while the other antidepressant that's newly started is titrated up to therapeutic dose. In a direct switch strategy you stop the antidepressant that the patient's currently on and directly switch them to the new antidepressant on the same day. So generally, my approach is if I'm switching from one antidepressant to a completely new antidepressant, like an SSRI to an SNRI, I do a cross taper. If I'm switching from one SSRI to a different SSRI, I do a direct switch. So For example, let's say you have a patient that's on escitalopram 20 milligrams a day with no response after four to six weeks, and I was interested in you know switching to an SNRI like duloxetine. What you what I would do here is a cross taper. So today I would tell the patient take escitalopram 10 milligrams a day, and we're going to also initiate duloxetine 30 milligrams a day in one week. I'm going to have you stop taking the acetalopram, but you'll continue take, taking the duloxetine until my next appointment with you in a month. And then at that next appointment, at the next month, I would go up on the duloxetine to like 60 milligrams if needed. Um, so that's what I would do in a cross-taper strategy, for example. And then in a direct switch um, example, what I could do is let's say the patient wanted to try sertraline instead of Escitalopram. So today, if the same patient, escitalopram 20 milligrams a day did not work, I just have them stop today. And then we can start sertraline like 50 milligrams a day today instead, because they're in the same class. And generally, it's tolerable. So I think that approach, the direct switch is totally appropriate in that situation.
2: You know, in our in our residency program, um, you know, with the clinics that we, we run, you um, some of the biggest challenges that we have with patients is, you know, they have a lot of like, um, you know, depression issues or like anxiety, things that, um, you know, it's, it's been great that we've gotten a lot of experience in it, but it's just like coming up with the best recommendations. That's always been a challenge. So I think it was really, it's really great to hear your perspective, really kind of pick your mind and share your experiences I think for the listeners out here on the podcast, even for us, the hosts, yeah. I think we, yeah. we've definitely learned a lot. Um, so yeah, I'm going to yeah. do it the Julie way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to
0: do it the Julie way. We're going to trademark it. Um, mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, some of these questions come from real life practice, but it's like, you know, I personally don't know any psychiatric pharmacists. So it's like, what do I do? How, who am I going to get in touch with to do this? It's like, I can do research. And like you said, there's different methods. So it's like, all right, well, which one do I go with, you know? And so it's it's helpful to meet someone um, and kind of gain their perspective and see why that they like to do certain things. And you don't have to follow it as long as it's in the best interest of the patient, of course. But um, we just really wanted to get your perspective on how to kind of maneuver in those situations. And then Mm -hmm. when it comes to counseling points, what are some of the things Mm -hmm. that you feel are important for students? Residents and pharmacists to always mention to a patient that's being put on an antidepressant.
1: So, of course, take it every single day. Um, the first like symptom you'll see some relief from is energy. So, um, some people are a little bit worried about this because a lot. One thing that pe- people with depression oftentimes talk about is suicidal ideation, but they have so much low energy that they're not able to complete their like suicide attempt. Uh-huh. So, um, there is some concern that like when you first start an antidepressant in the first two weeks, when they're regaining their energy, like what if they complete their suicide? So that's why, like when we're starting an antidepressant, we're always having close follow-up, um, depending on the person and depending on your availability too. it, your follow-up could be in the first two weeks or in the first month, or we'll do a phone visit at least just to see how the patient's doing. Um, and if they're even responding to the antidepressant and then, um, After that, um, other, other things to tell the patient is it will take about four to six weeks for your antidepressant to work. It takes a long time. So if after two weeks you think it's useless, it's not working at all, like just, you know, just wait a little bit just to be really sure. Like after a month and reassess and see like how your feelings are about the medication. If they still completely don't think there's no effect at all, then, you know, sometimes at a month you can think about it and evaluate whether or not you want to just switch at that point, or if you want to wait until at least six weeks and then switch, some people have different approaches, but, um, I personally think that at four weeks, if you see absolutely no response, then I would be okay. If a patient wants to switch, then I would be okay with switching. But, um, if I see partial response, that's different. I would be, I would want to keep them on that medication. Mm -hmm. So, um, that's why it's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like an art versus like a science to it, because yes. it really depends on how the person's responding. Um, in regards to counseling points, if it's an SSRI, I always talk about sexual side effects. Um, I always talk about how you should not like abruptly discontinue mm-hmm. because it could lead to withdrawal. But you see withdrawal more so with SNRIs versus SSRIs, especially duloxetine, which has a shorter half-life. So um, if you abruptly like with like stop that medication, you might go into like um, like a withdrawal of serotonin, which is not a really like good like side effect to have. You'll get like brain zaps. You'll get like really, really tired. Um, And it's not a great feeling to have.
0: I didn't know that. I didn't know it was actually more common with SNRIs and SSRIs. I'm glad you kind of educated us on that today.
1: Well, it's more so, it's not that it's not well, Oh, I guess just It's just like the short like yeah. acting agent. So like paroxetine, for example, that's also short acting. Mm-hmm. So that that one you'll also get like more likely to see a withdrawal from versus something long acting like fluoxetine. Yeah. Like You actually don't have to taper for fluoxetine because it's so long acting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, re- I remember learning that. I believe it's like active metabolites, like norfluoxetine, fluoxetine and, and that kind of stays in the system mm-hmm. longer. So that's why you don't experience those flu-like withdrawal symptoms. Um, but I never, mm-hmm. I guess, really paid attention to to Duloxetine having such a short half-life. So I'm glad you shared that with us. So that's something I'll definitely mm-hmm. be keeping in mind um, if I ever happen to deal with that scenario. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I love learning. This is awesome. Where else can you learn? You know? <laughs> like like
2: Caps Rx podcast. CapsRx Rx
0: podcast. You know, like where else can you learn um, inside information like this and also getting... Some wonderful perspective on on career and and residency experiences and whatnot. Like who else is tying this together? Only us, <laughs> only us. Pat kind of on the back to us. um Great. So, did you have anything else with depression? And then we could we could get into psychotics, and then we can get her off the hot seat. <laughs> yeah, I mean,
2: not really like medication related. Um, but like, I've heard things like throughout my career as like, you know, as a pharmacy student, like as a resident, like how foods can potentially make impacts Mm. in like treatment for like, you know, you know, depression, for example, like, um, like what have you seen or what have you heard uh, about the impacts of food? Like, do you find that beneficial? Do you find it not as beneficial? Like, what are your thoughts?
1: Um, the only thing I can think of for food would be like in regards to MAOIs because there's like, um, I'm sure you guys have remembered in school, like you have to like restrict, like, or if you eat any high tyramine types of foods, it can lead to like dangerous levels and a spike in blood pressure. It can lead to like, um, like a blood pressure crisis type of thing. So that's why, um it's important not to eat anything with tyramine products, which include like sauerkraut. Um, it's like been a pickles. while since I, yeah, yeah. Like, like pickles, pickles right? like pickled products. I think barbecue
0: yeah. foods, um, sauerkraut, um, wine too, wine in aged, yeah, like wine. anything that's like yeah. fermented. aged right? age
1: cheese, I age think cheese is cheese one of them as well. I still um, it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why it's important like for maos that's like the main side effect Mm -hmm. um regarding other food stuff like the only thing i can think of is like disulfiram for example um you can't have any alcohol related Mm -hmm. products like obviously not alcohol but that also includes like if you use alcohol related mouthwash you're gonna have a bad reaction to that too if you eat anything that's like alcohol related like even like kimchi i think that has like some type of fermented stuff in it that can also lead to a bad reaction from disulfiram
2: i did not know that i only knew about the fermented part i didn't know about the interaction yeah Yeah. but
1: like anything alcohol related you wouldn't get a bad reaction from disulfiram it doesn't have to solely be alcohol which is why like it's important that you know patients are aware of that too
0: yeah, definitely. I always thought, think about counseling about mouthwash because some mouthwash has alcohol in it, which you kind of mentioned earlier. But exactly. It,
1: yeah,
0: I didn't really think about other products too.
2: Yeah,
0: but it makes sense. Yeah. Um, okay. Thank you for that. And then, so I guess next up, we're putting on the hot seat again, uh, <laughs> kind of with antipsychotics. Um, we have mm-hmm. no idea when we'll, when we'll get to be around a specialist again, so we need your expe- expertise on what you kind of look at when starting an antipsychotic. I know there's the first generation and second generation of the antipsychotics. Um, and like, if it's an initial patient, they're presenting with psychosis. What are you kind of looking at and how, how yeah, do you come so, to that conclusion? You might need more info. So you could throw that in mm-hmm. there um, for this. Cause this, this is not my forte. <laughs> so I'll try <laughs> to make it easy for you.
1: Yeah. Um, so, yeah, schizophrenia, it, the main thing is it depends on the patient, of course, too. Um, positive symptoms of schizophrenia often has to do with high, like, levels of dopamine, excess dopamine, which then leads to positive symptoms, like the hallucinations, the disorganizations, um, like, et cetera. So, like, usually, like, that's where the first generation psych- psychotics were developed. It was to block dopamine. But then that led to, of course, all the other side effects like EPS or extra extra pyramidal symptoms, which are like movement type of like side effects. Um, And then that's what led to people realizing that there's also the other side of schizophrenia, which is the negative symptoms. And that's like where people have like low motivation. It kind of looks manifests as almost like depression where they have like blunted affect or like, um, yeah, not showing as much emotion type of thing. So people then realize that, you know, that there's actually a lower amount of dopamine in like a different region of our brain. Um, so to not c- overcomplicate things, I'll just define it as that. <laughs> and okay. um, that then leads to, so one way to t- target that is what the second generation antipsychotics do, which is antagonizing um, serotonin. Um, so because there's like an inverse like proportion relationship where if you antagonize like, serotonin, it leads to a compensatory release of dopamine. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what leads to like relieving the um, negative symptoms of schizophrenia. So um, because like one, one approach could be like looking at the symptoms of a patient. But what the guidelines usually suggest is your first option is a second generation antipsychotic, just because that way you can kind of refrain from having like Um, the extrapyramidal side effects concerned, but there's still, of course, extrapyramidal side effects you can get from second generation antipsychotics. Um, But my first approach is to try to use that. And if that does not work, then you can either switch to another second generation antipsychotic or you can choose a first generation antipsychotic. So for example, my personal first choice um, antipsychotic would be risperidone, just because there's a long acting injectable formulation of that um, one issue with a lot of patients that have schizophrenia is that they aren't adherent to their medications. So I would love to start, um, a patient on a medication that I, I know comes as a long acting injectable. So risperidone is my preference. If not that, then I would use airpiprazole, which also has a long acting injectable. And I prefer those two over the other ones that come in a long acting injectable only because, um, like they both come in monthly injections, um, Aristata or like, sorry, Abilify um, or a- Aripiprazole. Mm-hmm. There's actually one that comes every two months, which is pretty nice, but it all depends on the dose of Aripiprazole that you're on. And then um, there's also, of course, a long-acting injectable for Olanzapine, but there's a lot of side effects with that one. So I don't prefer that one. Um, with Haloperidol, there's a long-acting injectable of that one, too. Um, which is also every month. But one thing again with haloperidol is that it can lead to extrapyramidal side effects. One of them being tardive. Um, one of them being like dystonia, another be- being pseudo Parkinsonism. And you can also develop tardive dyskinesia after a long period of time of like antagonizing dopamine. Yeah. So those are some issues with like using first gens over a long period of time, but you can still develop those symptoms when you use a second generation antipsychotic over a long period of time too. Um, And second generation antipsychotics, one side effect of them is metabolic side effects. And some lead to more metabolic side effects than others. So that's why like when choosing, it's important to remember like which of the second generation antipsychotics have a higher risk of metabolic syndrome versus others. Like olanzapine and clozapine, for example, they have a pretty high risk of develop or leading to metabolic syndrome versus um, something like aripiprazole, which has a lower risk of leading Mm. to metabolic syndrome. So I kind of, my choice of how I do things is first, I ask the patient, what is your preference? What are some side effects you don't want to develop if they absolutely don't want metabolic syndrome then I will try to encourage them for aripiprazole. But one side effect of aripiprazole is apathesia, which is like restlessness. And like, it's kind of like an ants in your pants feeling. And some people don't like that. And they won't want to retry that. So when that's an issue, then I'll try risperidone. If that doesn't work, then I'll have to try other agents. And um, unfortunately, like I could talk about this for a really long time, but there's just (laughs) a lot of side effects with second generation antipsychotics. And there's a lot of things that I think about for this one.
0: Okay. And then one of them that you didn't mention, which I'm kind of shocked is Seroquel. Is there a reason why? Is it just because like, I don't, I don't know this for a fact, but I'm assuming there's no long acting injectable for that. That kind of plays a role in your decision-making. Yeah. There's
1: no long acting injectable for it. Um, It takes a bit of time to reach the, the dose that you need to reach some initial like um mm. psychosis so it's like, a long targets. Like, process yeah i think of when you first start serequil at 50 milligrams i think of it as a better form of benadryl because all yes, it is really yes. doing is histamine mm. at that dose and then it's not until 300 milligrams that you'll start seeing some benefit for psychosis and um but because of that, it's just going to take some time. It can lead to orthostasis. But um, the reason why some people still use Seroquel is because it is sedating. Um, for people that have, like, really bad voices at night, sometimes that's really good. It has a pretty low risk of leading to tardive dyskinesia. So that's why some providers like switching to it as well. Um, but, yeah, I personally don't use it very often because there's no long-acting injectable of it.
0: Yeah. Thank you for that. And that's something that, you know, that's not something that we do per se. Right. And that's not something that we're probably thinking about is having them be on a long acting injectable. We're probably just thinking, Oh, the medication might be the cheapest, might be the the easiest thing for them to get Mm -hmm. and deal with, but titrating Mm -hmm. them to that dose will be a process. And then if they actually do receive benefit from that would also be a process. Whereas instead you could probably just do a long acting injectable and that'll kind of get them probably therapeutic sooner, um, and help relieve the psychosis that the patient is experiencing.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah.
2: So, so, at what point do you initiate a long acting injectable? Do you like trial them on like the oral formulation first before you transition them, or do you just start them out with the injectable?
1: So um, that's a great question and an important question because. Long-acting injectables are extremely expensive. Um, per month, depending on which injectable you're getting, it could range in the thousands. Oh so it's really, really important, like, for you to get this covered. And you don't want to accidentally give a patient a long-acting injectable if it's, like, not going to work for the patient because that wastes hospital money. It also wastes insurance's money. So um wastes the patient money, too. So it's really important to, like, know and establish tolerability as well as efficacy with the oral um, agent before you suggest transitioning to a long acting injectable. Unfortunately, in the inpatient world, the goal is to try to discharge a patient as soon as possible. So I've actually been in situations before where we just like tried an antipsychotic orally for a couple of days, soon to realize that the patient actually did not respond. But by that point, we already gave them an injectable. And when you give someone an injectable, Like it's going to stay in their system for a month or two months um, or three months, depending on the injectable you chose. And if it doesn't work, that just means you have an antipsychotic in their system that's not working, which will take a long time for it to clear out. And it's just a waste for in terms of like resources. Um, So yeah, usually what I would do is if it's the outpatient world, then I will um, want to ensure efficacy and tolerability to it like so at least like a month or two like of them like responding pretty well to it and I know that generally they respond well and then after that I will suggest long-acting injectable when they're ready to receive it some patients don't like needles so some people don't want it but um if I feel like they're willing to take it I always advocate for it because it's convenient to use you don't have to risk them forgetting to take their pill
2: Oh, very interesting. and Thank you for that. Um, now, like you mentioned some potential barriers for use, um, you know, cost is a big one, you know, patient preferences, like if they don't like needles, that's another issue. Um, so in your experience, so what are some other um, potential barriers for use of long-acting injectables? Um, because, you know, again, like there there are like what you mentioned, a lot of different formulations, you have like the one month, the three months, and I believe there's now a six month formulation as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't like, I don't know, in your experience, like any potential barriers, is there like a preference for using like a one month versus a three month versus a six month? Um, So kind of your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, so I haven't actually ever used a three or six months i know that there exists like thin vega for example it comes as a monthly then a three month and it's like the trinza and now the half era, which is like every six months um i think that for people who can use the trinza or the half ERA, they must have had established tolerability and efficacy to at least the sustenna first which is like the monthly one and, and after they've responded quite well to it that's when you would initiate trinza which is like the three month and then after saling taller related that then i would recommend like something like half year but barriers are you had to first somehow get it on formulary because these are really expensive i know it, with some hospital systems they have like some type of like like deal with the pharmaceutical company or some type of like um way where they can get it at a discounted price um if they agree to use their product and that's kind of where like some hospitals actually make it like it's profitable for them to use certain like long-acting injectables versus others um i am not as clear in terms of the administrative stuff of that but i do know that some hospitals get some of the the long-acting injectables as a deal or rebate type of system Um, for those that do not then that's kind of why like they would go with other long-acting injectables that may be cheaper so some hospitals used haloperidol decanoate, which is a Haldol version of long-acting injectables, just because it's cheaper. Um, or some use Abilify Maintana, which is cheaper than Abilify Aristata, which is a newer Abilify injection, because it's just all due to cost. Um, I guess other barriers too um, would be, be like, yeah, patient doesn't want it, patient doesn't want to receive the injection, um, patient doesn't have access to go to a hospital facility to receive the injection because they can't inject it themselves. They usually need to have it administered by a nurse or something. So that could be some barriers um, to getting the injection. Um, and I think the uh, but one benefit is that there's data that shows that when you use LAIs, um, it reduces hospitalizations, which is also yeah. costly mm-hmm. to the hospital. Mm-hmm. So that that's like one huge benefit of why we use it.
0: Okay. Now let let's let's play a scenario. Let's say Mm -hmm. you are the pharmacy director, um, head of P and T committee. If there is one Mm -hmm. long acting injectable that you would have, what would you recommend, or what would be the 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 one that you choose?
1: Um, that's a good question. I mean, I guess risperidone, just because I really like risperidone. I feel like that one in Vega Sustena, um, really really works. Um, I think risperidone just like, it works in a lot of people I've seen. I mean, not to say that the other ones don't work. Um, but I, what I like about it is that it doesn't, I mean, it could lead to EPS, extra side effects, but, um, same with Abilify as well. That one can lead to akathisia. So I just feel like more of the patient, the patient population I've seen at the VA, they respond better to risperidone over aripiprazole because it's just personal preference, I guess, maybe like aripiprazole being that it's not a true like dopamine blocker, it, it acts through a different mechanism. I don't know if that's to say it doesn't work as well. It certainly works yeah. in some people. But um, at least like, I feel that like maybe resveridone may be better because it mm-hmm. it, it binds to dopamine pretty tightly.
0: Good. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you so much for that. Um, now, did you have any questions? No, no. No. Okay. So for, for our final question, now you're off the hot seat Mm -hmm. and then you can put us on the hot (laughs) seat, um, which I'm not ready for, but for our final question, um, we kind of just want to give you the opportunity to provide any takeaway points that you might have on mental health or any specific disease states like depression that you want other healthcare professionals to be knowledgeable about.
1: Well, I think the most important thing is know to be empathetic. People um, that have any type of mental health disorder, like they already deal with the stigma that's associated with it. So just knowing how to be empathetic and like how you approach someone, knowing that like if you're giving them counseling and there's something where like they might not be understanding it or like they might have a mental health disorder. um, It's important not to like just jump to conclusions, but just approach things in a very empathetic fashion and realize that maybe they have a lot going on, which is why, like, um, I don't know, like a hypothetical example, like they might not be able be motivated to take care of their diabetes, for example. Mm-hmm. So just knowing and explaining and understanding like what there may be other factors that they're going through. I think that's, that would be a really helpful approach. And also knowing how to do motivational interviewing really well. That's like a tactic we do in psych all the time. I think if all like ambulatory care providers like practiced it, like you can get a lot out of your patient and you can definitely motivate your patient to take charge of their health better.
0: And then with the, with the MI motivational interviewing, was that something that was just kind of taught within the practice or was there YouTube vids, different things that you kind of utilize to help you um, improve that?
1: I think it's just a lot of practice. So, um, you can do motivational interviewing on friends, like just when you give them advice. Like, I think that's certainly very possible. And, um, one of one like analogy that a friend once told me, um, a friend that works in psych- psychology is imagine that you're on a boat with someone else and they're talking to you about their feelings. Like, you want to be in the boat with them, not like on the shore. Like, you want to truly understand what they're feeling and saying and envision yourself in their shoes and, use like a reflective statement back to them because that's how that's what true MI is. It's reflection. It's um, affirmation. It's not sympathy. It's empathy. So those are that, those are important things to think about when you're talking to someone and trying to practice good motivational interviewing.
0: I love it. Now, Julie's awesome. I'm so glad I met you. (laughs) This is awesome. I learned a lot. Um, There's a lot of takeaway points from this episode and I'm so glad you are able to just educate us on mental health it's you know a disease state that I'm I wish I knew more about and I hope I gain more experience to learn more and to be a better service to our patients that we have here and that um, future patients that I'll come across and I'm same thing with Alex that's why you know um, when we were talking about potential people we could have to interview you were top of our list and that's why we're going to make sure you're number (laughs) one Um, yeah no thank you Um, thank you for being on here and taking the time out of your busy day being a PGY2 to sit down with us and kind of go over all of this with us um all right now it's our turn we're on the hot seat do you have any questions for us
1: um yeah i mean i guess what are your guys's big plans uh, with this podcast who are you interviewing next like what are some ideas
0: mm, who are we interviewing next okay so <laughs> um i have some pre-recorded episodes of actually alex and we kind of talked about imposter syndrome so that's going to be coming up um I have a, another already pre-recorded episode with a pharmacist. I'm forgetting his name now. I feel bad. Um, from an ID pharmacist at the VA, Gainesville VA. Um we we're able okay. to get. Yeah. So he's gonna kind of share his story. And then also another one of the PGY twos here at advent Health Celebration, uh Bailey, who's also one of my co residents, she um we're gonna be talking about kind of her experience because she's interesting because she came from she went to school in Kansas. I mean, she went to a pgy one mm-hmm. in North Carolina and then now she's in a PGY2 in Florida. So just kind of that experience doing it in different states, getting licensed mm-hmm. in different states, and kind of following up with her story. And then what we have up next is um, one of the one of my one of my really good friends, Prachi, she's she just matched. I don't know if she I guess we could say it because she posted it. Um she matched that Morton plant. Um, which is, I believe, in Tampa or St. Petersburg. It's a BayCare institution. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with BayCare. I don't think they're out West. I think they're mainly in Florida. Um, but she wanted to kind of talk about what she used to help her match um, with her number one choice. So we're going to kind of have like a residency recap
1: mm-hmm. and she can
0: kind of talk about her story and the different things that she did to help her get to that point to be able to match. And we also have Jason, who is a mm-hmm. pharmacist from Canada. He's a he owns a retail pharmacy right and then he's also really involved in leadership and so he has like a leadership course and so we're going to kind of talk about Mm -hmm. um different leadership um methods he came up with seven different um ways i'm forgetting it now it's like layered yes yes seven different layers of leadership um and and we're going to kind of dive deeper into that and i think that's big because i know alex and i have had private conversations about this how We believe a lot of times with pharmacists that they get kind of promoted to these leadership positions, but they never really went through the proper leadership courses or whatnot. So I think this Mm -hmm. would be a pretty cool opportunity to kind of get like a free course crash course on leadership and like the different things that we should be doing as leaders in our profession. Um, So that's what we have next. Um, There's some other individuals I want to reach out to kind of talk about diabetes, talk about different Amcare topics. But um, that's basically what we have coming up next, and those episodes should be probably Sunday. We're gonna do Prachi and and Jason.
1: Cool. And then oh, oh that's um, really funny.
0: Who's uh?
2: Yeah, we also have yes. a um, pre pharmacy student that's coming yeah. on. He's actually he's he's at UCI. Um, he started a podcast called the ZotRx Podcast. Uh, oh, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, so we wanted to bring him on to get his perspective on things, just like why he started the podcast. Um, because again, he's a pre-pharmacy student. So we just want to see like his motivations, his goals for his podcast. And yeah, no, I think I don't know who else we have besides. Yeah, I think that's it yeah. for
0: scheduled. Um, but there is definitely gonna be more people that I have in the back of my mind to reach out to. And then so that's like future episodes, plans. Um, just really be more accessible to everybody, to our audience to Really be involved and help them in any way. We've been posting different things on our Instagram page, which we just changed the name to Capsule RX. So, mm-hmm. anybody that um, is a Capsule RX or the Capsule RX podcast, I should double checked. Well, it's
2: Capsule RX podcast. podcast. Yes, yeah. yeah. on
0: Instagram it's Capsule RX podcast. Yeah. Um, so, at Capsule RX podcast. And we've been posting to kind of see different things that people want us to talk about. One of my favorite things Mm -hmm. to do, Alex knows this, uh, (laughs) he he knows exactly where I'm about to go, um, is finance, finance. So like, don't be shocked. (laughs) Yeah, don't be shocked, America, if I get a, um, if I get a CF, get my CFP. uh, So basically become a certified financial planner. And that's something Mm -hmm. I'm really passionate about is finance, finances. And that's something that it seems like a lot of people would like kind of to know how to manage their loans and different opportunities to help pay off your loans. So that's something that, um, I'll probably try to put together maybe a PowerPoint presentation I could share with everybody and then also do an episode on that. Um, also we talked about like doing CV stuff, like a CV workshop, um, letter of intent workshop as well. So different opportunities to really help and help people out to get to their goals. Cause I think, uh, It's always great to match with your number one choice with things, but not everybody is able to do that. So we just want to help those individuals that want to take the next step to separate themselves from everybody else um, Mm -hmm. and help them really try to match with their their first choice, whether it's a residency or even a fellowship, because we have some individuals that also work in um, the fellowship realm as well.
1: Okay, so that's really cool. That's great work that you guys are doing.
0: Yeah, thank you, thank you. We appreciate it. Um, And then. Is, is that it? Are we off the hot seat? <laughs>
1: um, I think, yeah, I mean, you guys answered pretty much my questions, but that's cool. <laughs>
0: Perfect. And then um, before we let you go, is there um, anything you want to share with the audience as far as like maybe your socials, if anybody wants to follow you or reach out to you? I don't know if you prefer like a LinkedIn, um, maybe an Instagram, Facebook. I don't know. What's your...
1: um? I Yeah, you, you're welcome to follow me on LinkedIn. Um, my link, I mean, you're welcome to share it, yeah. but if you look me up, it's just, yeah, just to share it because I, I think it'd be too hard to spell. <laughs>
0: <laughs> got it. Yeah. yeah. So I'll definitely do that. I can add it to the show notes. Um, Everybody, if you're a fan, go ahead and go ahead and add her on LinkedIn and let her know that you listen to her on Caps RX podcast. Um, that'll mean the world to us. And she can let us know um, that she's she's got some new followers. She got some new fans. So she has <laughs> she has one new fan right now. Alex knew her previously. Alex and and Julie knew each other previously. So she has one Mm -hmm. new fan. That's me right now. Um, If you don't have a fan club, we can start that for you too. So (laughs) we'll add that to the list of many things we got to do as far as the podcast team. But we're so excited to have you on. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy day to be with us today.
1: All right. Of course. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And yeah, feel free to like send people who are interested in psych. I'm happy to talk with them too.
0: Perfect. Yeah. Well, I'll definitely um, keep that in mind. If we come across any students or anybody that's interested, we'll we'll send them your way. And then mm-hmm. as always, everybody, you can follow us on at capsule RX podcast. Yes. I said, as always, See, I'm so used <laughs> to saying the other name. I shouldn't say as always for the first time on the first <laughs> episode under capsule RX podcast, you can follow us on Instagram at capsule RX podcast, new logo, new podcast, same team added in a couple new people. I added in Alex, added in Bailey, sprinkled in a couple <laughs> new people. Um, a lot of new energy. We're, we really appreciate everybody that's commenting on our pages, um, giving us feedback when it comes to the things that we're posting on our stories. Um, as always, every Thursday's Teach Back Thursday, be on the lookout for a question that we put to help with your, your learning for the Naplex and preparing for that. Then on Friday, we'll definitely post the, the answers to those questions. Um, we have a lot of exciting things planned for y'all and we'll eventually, if not before this episode, we'll do a debrief, um, kind of break down some of the the new members of the podcast, some introductions and kind of what we're planning on doing going forward. So we thank everybody for being so patient with us, for um, bearing with us this year It's kind of been tough on all of us because we we're in residency. <laughs> yep. so So we've been busy. But we're excited to be back Uh, now that residency is coming to a close. uh, We're excited to be back. And we just want to be of service to everybody that's listening. So thank you so much, everybody. And um, tune in until next time.